welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we bring you the first of a series of parallel papers presented at our 2009 annual conference, Global Bioethics, Emerging Challenges Facing Human Dignity. In this paper, Ryan Nash, MD, explores the role of healthcare provider directiveness in the decision-making process. Dr. Nash's presentation is entitled, Shared Decision-Making, a Spectrum of Directiveness. All right, topic is shared decision-making, a spectrum of styles. It's really in the spectrum, think of uh, the shades as directiveness. And we're talking about physician directiveness. And you'll, you'll see what I mean as we go along. Before I start, a thank you to Dr. Bob Orr, who's from Trinity, who's now moved to Loma Linda primarily, but is still affiliated with this program and part of the center. Our conversations really started this article. Had the privilege of presenting this a few times and have had a great deal of feedback on it. And uh, thank you to the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary for some of the word definitions, though I took great liberty in their usage. I also have to say I haven't referenced many things. There are several ethicists and physicians who have talked about patient-physician decision-making. I could have a long work cited, but I'll leave that for the paper. I'm not taking a lot of the time to reference here. In decision-making, before the common, more enlightened era, physicians were accused of having a paternalistic model. If we had time, I'd ask you to think about what that is. So what is it? I think it's often used as a pejorative that is thrown about far too quickly. That if you dare give guidance or direction to a patient, then you're paternalistic. If you dare do anything other than, here's your menu of options, would you like fries with that? Then perhaps you're paternalistic. So obviously the the word is talking about being a parent or father. Um, to the patient as if that's a horrible thing. It may have its proper role to think parentally um, in some cases, especially for those who are underserved or neglected or uh, exploited. But the suggestion I'll say is I want to give a tight definition of what paternalism clearly is to everybody. I'm not saying this is exhaustive, and there is paternalism that, that that this definition doesn't cover, but for the sake of this talk, I want to think of paternalism an agreed-upon definition, which is when a physician decides for the patient and doesn't communicate it. It's not shared in any way. So the physician makes the decision because they know best, and that, that decision is not communicated, and so the patient doesn't share even the right of refusal, which is what medicine was often guilty of in previous eras. Is it ever ethically defensible? So there's clearly barriers to shared, good to shared decision-making. And I think we rightfully think about in getting informed consent, um, there are cultural barriers and distinctives that we need to be aware of, and, and the practice may change broadly. I'm going to say paternalism is practiced every day by every physician throughout the U.S., and it's ethically defensible in the right circumstance. I mean, how many of you have had patients in the hospital that you had an IV in? Okay. How many of you went to the patient and said, ma'am, I'm going to put this IV in your arm. The risks of that IV are of infected thrombophlebitis uh, and pain and swelling, and it could, you could have infiltration, and you could... Uh, you didn't go through risk benefits and alternatives. You just wrote an order for the IV. 
right? Because you knew the patient needed it, and uh, it was reasonable. So in, in discussions in decision-making, um, a, there's a fairly well-accepted concept that shared decision-making, paternalism is defensible if, the, if, the, if what is in, at, at, in, in question has relative certainty and relative low risk. So it is ethically defensible to use paternalism if there's relative certainty or if there's a relative low risk. Uh, it's when things increase in risk or increase in uncertainty that sharing in the decision has is, is, uh, become normative. But paternalism isn't just a pejorative. It is sometimes we make um, assumptions based on low risk and a relative um, amount of certainty. Uncertainty is always the problem in medical ethics. If we actually had omniscience, it wouldn't be a such thing. So paternalism can be defensible. So shared decision-making was the great answer to paternalism in those questions of great uh, higher risk and higher uncertainty. But uh, the question is, are all the styles of shared decision-making equally worthy or e equally ethically defensible? Most of the literature talks about sharing, and as if sharing was always the best way and good thing, and as long as you share in the decision-making, you're, you're doing the right and ethical thing. So I'm going to lay out a spectrum of shared decision-making styles. Again, the, the spectrum, the tint of the spectrum is going to be the directiveness of the physician and you'll follow that. The darkest of the styles in shared decision-making, so we're at the physician and the patient are making the decision together, it's communicated, the darkest of the styles is coercion. Now, a lot of people won't think of coercion as shared decision-making, but you're sharing the decision. The patient at least has the right to refuse. Now, is coercion ever ethically defensible? First, let's find out what it is. So a working definition of uh, coercion, to compel to enact or choice by force or threat. So is it ever ethically defensible? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, we can think of examples. I think of an example in your head. Drug overdose. It needs charcoal. It needs charcoal. Drug overdose intentionally. We'll get to that example. So I'm going to say no, but rare exception. Okay, and let's talk about an example. Suicidal patient hospitalized against their will. It is coercion in, a, in, in the, the simple sense of the word coercion, but it's not part of shared decision making. Because actually that patient lacks decisional capacity, is what we're saying. The reason that we are able to um, decide for them is because they're taken out of the equation. Um, now, they don't lose complete decisional capacity. They lose capacity over the protection of their life. They still may refuse their antipsychotic medications, but they are going to get that charcoal and are going to be held in the hospital. So the suicidal patient, drug overdose patient, really isn't shared decision making. The biggest, the number one way of coercing patients is to say, I won't treat you unless you do this. Now, I've experienced that many times in my career, often I think in ethically indefensible ways, that unless you agree to this treatment of your HIV disease or this treatment of your heart failure, I won't be your doctor. And I think sometimes we're a little too fast to turn to those, and I think those do have ethically, um, you know, service-oriented, we're wanting to serve our patients and enter into a relationship with them. Sometimes we're bullies in that relationship. 
And I think those should co come into some ethical question. But I do think there's at least one clear example of ethically defensible coercion, and that's the drug contracts with patients. So I do chronic pain management some, and all of my patients, palliative or not, that come to my clinic sign a drug contract saying they won't receive opioids from another physician that unless they call our, our clinic first, that they'll agree to a random drug screens, and if they ever refuse, they're in violation, and that they'll call our office if they're going to have to use their opioid more often than what's prescribed. And the threat is we will not prescribe opioids any longer. Now, I personally never say that I'll stop being your doctor. Even if I think someone's diverting drugs, I'll still be their doctor. I just won't, it's how I'm going to behave is going to change quite a bit. But it's still a threat of losing part of the care unless they do what I say. So it is coercion, but I think it's ethically defensible. A slight bit lighter shade of directiveness is manipulation. And we'll go quickly through these next um, to get to the large, larger point. Is, uh, here's the de working definition. To convince by artful or unfair means so as to serve one's purposes. Is it ever, ever ethically defensible? Let's take an example. 72-year-old man who has never been sick in his life presents to the hospital with a gangrenous foot. When think, not, don't think dry gangrene. Think wet. Think uh, if I don't cut this off, the patient's going to die. Um, he needs medical treatment, but he's wanting to leave AMA. What do you do? Well, I trained with a former dean of a couple of medical schools, a wonderful man, an internist, who I was with him in his late 70s. And uh, he was difficult in that he, he's always spoken riddles. Um, you never knew exactly what he was saying, until unless you didn't do what he said. If you got the riddle wrong, he usually found out when he came up to you and said, we, we had a man similar to this story, came to him and said, well, doctor so-and-so, what do we do? And he said, all right, let me tell you a story. There once was two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain killed Abel, and God came to Cain and said, Cain, where's thou brother Abel? And Cain said, God? Am I my brother's keeper? He said, now, Ryan, that question hasn't been answered for 6,000 years, and you're asking me to do it now. <laughs> it was funny, cute, but he's wrong. Who wants to be a cane? I think it was answered immediately. Ask this 72-year-old man who's sitting in the nurse's station saying, I want to leave AMA, instead of saying, oh, I had him sign the papers and risk management satisfied, ask him why. Oh, I'm, I want to feed my dog. Does he really want to feed his dog? He's scared. He's never been sick in his life. And you're about to take him to surgery. And I think we're the, the, higher ethic, the highest ethical load is to say whatever you can to get him in another calm environment. Get him back in his room. Say whatever you need to to manipulate him back in that room so then... You can control the, the environment a little bit more and then have informed consent before you continue that treatment. And if he's persistent in his wishes to leave, you can't, you can't force him. But especially when you have the emotionally distraught patient, the patient who's scared, the, pa the vulnerable patient, um, I think we can use artful means to to take people out of stressful situations. So uh, what I'll say is 
Uh, is it ethically defensible? Yes, but only in extreme circumstances and for a very short duration. And it should be the duration shortest, the shortest duration possible for controlling the situation. I, I, I think there's a, a, a place for it. We just need to know it's not normative. Um, if, we're, if, if we're manipulating, if we're saying, you know, one of the more common areas of manipulation may be in resuscitation efforts. I think a realistic expression of what resuscitation is is fine. But emphasizing the negative to a level of absurdity, absurdity um, is manipulation that isn't ethically justifiable. So let's go from the two darkest shades, and let's skip all the way to the lightest shade. So sorry to not follow the spectrum, but let's skip all the way to the very the, the lightest shade. That's abdication. Abdication, working definition, to renounce or cast off a duty, function, or responsibility. Is it common today? I think, is it ethical? Is it, is it ever ethically defensible to abdicate position responsibility? And I'm not talking about firing or anything like that. Here's a really common example of what I consider abdication. I see it in house officers regularly. 92-year-old woman with end-stage dementia is being admitted to the hospital. Her daughter's being interviewed by the medicine resident on call who asks, if your mom gets really sick, do you want us to do everything? Who's going to say no to that? No, I want you to do nothing. Matter of fact, the jargon that we use in medicine, physician may know that when a resident says everything, they usually mean pressors and intubation and mechanical ventilation and um, resuscitation efforts. but that daughter doesn't know that. And one of our responsibilities is to communicate, um, to make it, to give the information needed for someone to share in the decision making. If we say, no, it's your decision to make and we're not going to help, it's all you, then we're abdicating our responsibility. If we fail to give the basic information needed for, for someone to share in that decision making process, then we're shirking our responsibility. So is it common? Yes. Is it ethically defensible? No. And I think never is it ethically defensible. We're so, we're so concerned with autonomy that we don't even give that real menu of options. We, uh, or we give the menu of options and it's in French <laughs> with no dollar signs on it. <laughs> and you know, they're, they're picking blindly. So what's missing is information. So moving from the lightest shade abdication over another shade, um, you have informational style. The informational style, working definition, the communication and hopefully the reception of knowledge or more common joint commission language, sharing of risks, benefits, and alternatives. Is it ethically defensible? Yes. This is the minimum standard for decisions having significant risk and uncertainty is to actually share the relevant information going to blow through the quickly the other styles so we can talk about their uh, how, how to utilize them. And the next shade darker from informational approach is guidance. What is guidance? It's to give direction and advice or to give a recommended or suggested plan of action. Okay, so is guidance ever, eth is it ethically defensible? I sure hope so. It's what I do almost, most of the time. And is it preferable? We'll get to that.
Another shade darker in directiveness is persuasion. How this difference from guidance, I think, will be clear by the definition is to move by argument or entreaty or expostulation to a course of action or simply to try to convince. A little bit different than guidance. Guidance saying, here's what I recommend. And persuasion may look like, I really think we should do this. Man, no, I don't think we should do that. I think that's a bad idea. I think we should do this. Trying to convince them of your way. Is it ethically defensible? It probably is in the right circumstance. I mean, this group is easy to say. They've already said coercion right off the bat. Was, and paternalism was ethically defensible. So I don't, I don't have to preach the choir, but it probably, probably is in the right circumstance. Is it preferable? We'll talk about that. So the spectrum, the spectrum of uh, shared styles is from lightest to darkest, abdication, informational, guidance, persuasion, manipulation, and coercion. That's the spectrum. We have some problematic styles in abdication, manipulation, and coercion. We have less problematic styles in informational guidance and persuasion. Okay, so that's the essential the thesis. And I will, I can't emphasize, overemphasize, especially those involved in medical education, abdication is the problem of, is the real inherent problem of medical students and residents currently. They're learning an autonomy driven communication style and they shirk their responsibility and, say, and hide behind autonomy doing it. Choosing the appropriate style. When do we use an informational style? When do we use a more persuasive style? So I think to help with this, we need to kind of decide, we, we need to consider why do we use shared decision making at all? Why not use paternalism? And for the sake of time, I'll give you the answer. What are doctors experts in? The experts in medicine, hopefully. That expertise may be waning, um, but they're, they're, they're experts in medicine. What are patients experts in? Themselves or their loved ones. All too often, we ask our patients to be experts in both. And all too often, we don't ask enough questions or, for, or don't ask questions the right way to allow patients to express their expertise in themselves. That's a whole nother aside that I could go off on medical voyeurism for a long time. But I'll, I'll save that for another talk another time. But I think we're really guilty of a voyeuristic style of relationships. So we should empower our patients to share of themselves and how that informs the decision at hand. But we shouldn't ask them to become experts in medicine. We should share our expertise in medicine and see how that interfaces with the, the expertise on the person. And that's what shared decision is supposed to be about. So we should also think about the burdens on the physician and patient or proxy. If you have a great amount of medical persuasion going on something that is, isn't as important, you may be putting undue burden on the patient and family. If you uh, aren't sharing the appropriate amount of information, I'm very aware of this in treatment for, uh, for instance, resuscitation and um, chemotherapy in terminally ill patients, we put the whole burden on that patient or patient family member, and they think they're making a life or death decision, and that's already determined. But they don't know that. And after their loved one dies, for the next years, they're thinking, did I kill mama? Did I do everything I should? And we're sitting over here going, well, there wasn't really any other choice. 
you know, the, the, what we were doing was just good medicine and palliative medicine. Often, often I have to dispel this myth that it's this great autonomous choice that you're choosing this alternative pathway when they've already had chemo and radiation and surgery and there's nothing else for medicine to do other than care for them, other than symptom control. And dispelling that myth, that kind of false dichotomy, that there's this completely alternative pathway is a big role. And I see the burden, this big decision-making burden on families that are bereaved, but whether, asking whether they did the right thing with their loved one. So I think we should consider those things when we're choosing styles about what, who's an expert in what, how that interfaces, and I'm very interested in burden-relieving decision-making on the patient and patient family. And I think we can do that if we use, choose the right style. Uh, abdication will always put undue burden on the patient and patient family. When do we use informational style? We usually, better physicians that don't do abdication, will often use informational style on the very severely ill, the, the big things. You know, here's your option. UAB hospital has seven different code statuses. It's bewildering to me, and I'm, I'm rewriting the policy, but they've had it for years. And so it is a menu of options. So we'll often use an informational style in the most dire decisions. And when do we use persuasive styles? Things like LASIK eye surgery. Let me give you an example. My daughter had, my, my wife's a speech pathologist, and she called me one time and said, um, Caroline doesn't have non-visually non cued consonants. Great. Well, I have a, 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 yeah, I have a point with her, with her pediatrician tomorrow. And the pediatrician, we go in, he says, you know, these ears look awful, she needs tubes. And we go the next day to the ENT who says, oh, I'm real conservative with tubes, but she needs tubes. Well, what is that? That's not informational. We got risk, benefits, and alternatives right before surgery. That's persuasion. She needs it. Or when you go into the ophthalmologist's office and you see the big barrel of glasses and they say, you would be a great candidate for LASIK eye surgery, the best thing you ever did. Or you go in the dermatologist to see about that mole and they say, you know those crow's feet, I can get them. These are persuasive, almost marketing, I mean, it is, it's commercial tactics that we use on elective procedures. And we often will use the most persuasive tactics um, on elective procedures. But when it comes to whether you should take Zolota for the metastatic colon cancer, we say, well, the, here's your options. And the really good oncologists will give maybe percentages and how long they will, uh, how long um, life expectancy will change, how much life expectancy will change. It will give information. But it's your decision. So I think we do it exactly backwards. I think the things that take the greatest amount of expertise in medicine we use less directiveness, and the things that really are more, tri no, I don't want to say trivial, but more elective and take more understanding of the person, we, we make the, try to make, persuade them to fall into what we want them to think. So I think we should really flip our approach, not always using persuasion in those, um, but maybe guidance. I think that'd be greatly burden relieving if we used more of a guidance approach. I think we should flip those. What I was saying is that's what we do. And I think we, I'm suggesting we should flip those. Or more, I think, I, th I think persuasion may not need to be needed unless there's conflict. Um, but using guidance instead of informational on the very weighty matters. So 
Suggested style selection. Informational is the minimum standard and should be preferred for elective and less serious interventions. Okay, if you're having a tubal ligation, here's, the, here's your information. And if you're having LASIK eye surgery, if you're having, if you're trying to decide between the uh, different types of total abdominal hysterectomy, give the information on it. Guidance may be, guidance style, may be prefer the preferred style for the serious and complex interventions. So that's what I'm suggesting, is not persuasion as the preferred style, but guidance as the, that this is our recommended course, here's why I recommend this course, is and have that be a discussion. And persuasion should probably be reserved for very serious cases with where there's a potential disagreement, such as, uh, I'm going to use the term very broadly, futility, um, refusal of care, et cetera, where we're trying to convince our patient that what they're doing may be wrong. That was Shared Decision-Making, a Spectrum of Directiveness by Ryan Nash, MD. Dr. Nash is assistant professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Gerontology, Geriatrics, and Palliative Medicine, University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. A print version of the presentation abstract is available on our website at www.cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center, and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.